0: Hello, and welcome to you all. My name is Tamar Garb, and I'm the director of the Institute of Advanced Studies. And we're really delighted to welcome you all to this book launch of this fascinating collection of essays that you're going to hear a lot about, The Responsibility of Intellectuals. Um, Let me just tell you that this forms part of a series. In the IAS, right from the start, we've been very interested in engaging with books that provoke us that invite us to think about topics in ways that we perhaps hadn't done before, that open up the space of UCL and much more broadly of colleagues and friends from across London who want to think with books in their entirety and with their authors. So the way that the format works is that we often um, put together panels in which we have uh, uh, people who have contributed to the book and the authors in dialogue with um, other people and indeed with members of the public. So there will be time tonight after our speakers have spoken for you all to ask questions and to engage in discussion with the authors, and that's really part of um, what the event is about. Uh, Let me just say a few words of introduction, and then I'm going to hand over um, to Chris in a few minutes. As I'm sure all of you know, because that's why you're here, this um, event is really a celebration of a particular moment, Um, It's a moment that returns to a very, very generative and crucial essay that Noam Chomsky um, uh, published in the uh, New York Review of Books in 1967 at a very particular moment, very febrile moment, in relation to anti-war politics, particularly in the context of the Vietnam War um, in the United States. And you're going to hear much more about that uh, from uh, Chris Knight in a a moment. Um, Fifty years after that event, in 2017, at UCL, there was a conference that was commemorating that event and thinking about and with the um, article that Chomsky wrote. And it's taken from 2017 to now for uh, the six essays and the introductions and Chomsky's response to appear in this form as the book that we're here um, tonight to engage with. So you'll hear a lot more about that. And particularly, I think, about some of the key um, issues and themes that Chomsky's essay uh, um, uh, uh, suggested and re- and 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 provoked around what it is to speak truth to power, what truth is, and what the role of the intellectual or expert, and of course those categories and those concepts are in themselves interesting to think with and contentious uh, we don't uh, necessarily all agree as to what those are and how they might be viewed and how they sit um, in relation to institutions and the social fabric that we all occupy but these are indeed some of the uh, issues that are going to be raised tonight what is an intellectual what is an expert what is the responsibility of an intellectual and an expert in times of stress in political um, in times of political controversy and what does truth mean in that in 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 that context. And in relation to truth and lies, of course, for us in the IAS, this is particularly interesting as last year our whole theme of the whole year was on the theme of lies, and we listened to many, many um, discussions and debates around uh, how we might think of truth and lies in the context of fake news, etc., um, uh, in, in which we all function today. So um, just let me say a few uh, general things, and before I hand it over, one of the things that struck me as so powerful about this volume is that it's a volume without a party line. It's a volume in which there is huge amount of internal debate and quite a lot of conflict. In fact, more conflict that you will f- than you will find in, in, in most uh, academic um, and provocative uh, collections of essays. And I think we're going to hear more about what is going on inside this book, which actually creates an internal argument. So not only am I sure that many of you will have um, uh, pressing and challenging questions to ask of the speakers, uh, but in fact, the book itself is built around a series of disagreements um, that I think will be interesting uh, for us to hear about. So the way the format of the evening is going to work is as follows. The book, as you've seen, has got um, three editors, Nicholas Allitt, Chris Knight, and Neil Smith. Chris Knight is going to start off the proceedings by telling us a little bit about uh, the formation of the book and about how his own personal dialogue with Chomsky and his situation uh, pans out um, in this book itself. Uh, We're also very, very happy to have Neil Smith with us this evening, and I think he will speak at some point later on in the evening. Um, We were going to have two panellists, but I'm very, very sorry to say that uh, Milan Rai is unwell and unable to uh, to participate tonight. But um, Jackie Walker will be then on her own as the one uh, uh, as the dialoguer with Chris up here on the panel and then um, with all of you. Just quickly for those of you who don't know, Chris is an honorary professor of anthropology here at UCL and a founding member of the Revolutionary Anthropology Group. Is that true? I've got that in my notes. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody's applied it to me. That's
1: wonderful to be renamed. We're, we're actually the I beg time. your pardon.
0: <laughs> I'll substitute
1: I'll,
0: I'll substitute sub- I'm very happy with the Well, substitute radical for revolutionary. And there we go. I've been also joined, as I said, by um, by Jackie Walter. Or, sorry, Jackie Walker, author of Pilgrim State, as well as one of the essays in Uh, the book so each of these um, panelists will will talk about Chomsky's legacy and um, may I urge you to think with me that what the what the event about is really to think about the um, uh, uh, longevity really of Chomsky's essay and what his legacy (laughs) means to us today what we can learn from it and what we might want to um, push back against how useful that essay remains or not for us today in our situation. Now, I'm aware, and I'm sure all of you are aware, that there has been uh, some opposition to this event going ahead, and there have been certain controversies around this event. We don't want to push those under the carpet. We acknowledge that there are differences, and there might very well be strong differences in this room about uh, uh, from people who have come. But we ask of you all, in the interests of free speech, and we all sign up at UCL to uh, 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 preserving and protecting academic freedom and free speech we ask you all please that when you disagree to do so politely and um, in a way that's constructive and in the interests of intellectual exchange and debate which is what a university is for we ask you that you allow the panelists to speak and to speak through without interrupting, and you will be given a chance to challenge, to push back, to ask uh, uh, questions that you have in your mind afterwards in the discussion. So I'm really delighted to invite Chris to um, start the proceedings.
1: So wonderful to see so many of you uh, here. Um, Tamar mentioned um, the febrile atmosphere at um, in mm-hmm. MIT, where Noam Chomsky was, of course, working, um, actually pretty much exactly 50 years um, ago, uh, November um, 1969. And I thought just to convey what this atmosphere meant, a short video clip would, would do the job pretty well. Um, but the sound. The sound off, off. Can we sound? So the sound right, on. No, so right,
2: Technically. <laughs>
0: to say one thing and that is that we are making an official recording of the proceedings so anybody who wants a recording afterwards will be able to have one.
3: Playing big time sports is not always full Uh, of fame and victory. Athletes are people too and they like everyone else.
0: So we ask you please not to photograph and make recordings because we haven't got permission from everybody here to be recorded or to be photographed but we, we will have a recording for those of you who want it afterwards.
1: So I, I thought that, um, that, that video um, clip conveyed the atmosphere. Um, it's so simple. Um, Noam Chomsky is uh, probably the world's leading um, anti-militarist activist. And it's uh, just the, 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 the most extraordinary irony uh, that he spent all his life in the world's number one center of um, military uh, research, and um, when we think to ourselves, how is it that Noam Chomsky is just so absolutely brilliant? I mean, how is it that he does seem to get it? It speak the truth no matter what, and I can't think of any other intellectual that's just been so consistent in exposing lies and and duplicity and 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 state criminality. And my explanation is this that it comes out of that paradox that actually Noam was an insider. He was right in the middle of the world's number one center of military research, and his, his close friends, uh, and this is the difficult thing to say, <laughs> were major figures in developing the weaponry used in um, the Vietnam War. So, I mean, it is simple. Um, the message is simple. The responsibility of intellectuals is to tell the truth um, and expose lies. And when Chomsky talks about intellectuals, sometimes people misunderstand what he's saying. He's not saying intellectuals are especially important people. He's saying intellectuals have special access to information. They have a a special responsibility because they, they kind of know things. And so when he says speak the truth, he's saying especially speak the truth um, and all the pressures are to cover up and go with the crimes, go with the, the state criminalities. Now, um, wonderfully, uh, Neil Smith, my co-editor of the book, is here this evening. We weren't sure that he he would be here. He has been not too well um, recently. Um, um, but the, the, the point about the book is that it's it could not have happened had it not been for for Neil, because Neil for many years has been a a friend and actually a close family friend of Noam Chomsky and his his family. Um, The same can't be said of Chris Knight. Um, (laughs) uh, Noam Chomsky, I don't think would say that he regards me um, as a friend. Um, And um, actually, It's actually been quite difficult for me. Anyone who's looked at this book may have noticed something. And and probably, if it hadn't been for all the the, the kind of, I don't know, propaganda shenanigans around whether this whole event should be closed down, I think um, what sort of strikes you in the book is this astonishing clash now, um, some of my friends, um, maybe female friends in particular, have, have got kind of made fun of this, and, it, and it, you could regard the whole clash between Chris Knight and Erm Chomsky as two old geezers, um, um, a septuagenarian and an octogenarian. now, of course, a nonagenarian. <laughs> Chomsky's just had his 90th birthday, sort of fighting each other with their Zimmer frames. Um, I hope you'll think that actually that the speech are a little bit more um, serious um, than that and i just want to make it very clear when i'm when i'm in my in the in my chapter and in, in in this talk when i'm when i'm mentioning exactly where noam chomsky was when i'm mentioning the the military research that noam was involved in i'm not saying shock horror that noam chomsky was taking money, however directly or indirectly, from the military. I mean, we all live in a world which isn't exactly ideal. Um, Some people have said to me, Chris, what about UCL? I mean, I I don't know all the different investments that UCL make and whether or not I would approve of them morally. So I'm not making the point that Noam Chomsky shouldn't have been working in MIT. I'm not making that point at all. It's a completely different point. My interest is partly in politics, but I've always had the view that politics which isn't based on science is gonna be, in some sense, rubbish. And um, I'm I'm, I'm interested in, in, as an anthropologist, in in what it means to be human, trying to put the big picture together of how we've evolved as a human species, understanding our past may be useful if we want to sort of navigate into, into a future. And what I've just found impossible is Noam Chomsky's, the work he did, if you like, for the military. The work he does against the military, magnificent. The work he was doing for the military, I just can't, I, can't, I just can't relate to it. I can't relate to the idea that language is a computational mechanism in the head of an individual that this individual uses for talking to um, itself, uh, which is one of the, the ways in which Noam Chomsky you know, f- defines language. It's not for communicating. It's not social. It's an individual thing. It's an object. It's a physical object. I can't relate to the idea that words are in, in, innately installed. Um, I mean, Noam says that the word house, the word book, the word tree, the word climb, the, the, the lexical concept, not the sound, but the, the, the concepts behind these words were all installed in Homo sapiens at the moment of speciation. And the, the philosopher Hilary Putnam was very really puzzled by this. and said, well, Noam, are you saying carburetor is an innately installed concept? Mm-hmm. And... Um, we were all just amazed, because one said, um, yes, it has to be innately installed. And there's no way that such complex concepts could possibly be acquired by a child or a, or, or a growing child. Uh, I can't relate to the idea that language uh, emerged in the species in an instant, and uh, in, in one individual's head as a result of a cosmic ray shower causing a mutation, which then produced this perfect language. He could describe it as, as, as perfect whereupon the individual who experienced this mutation began to talk to us. I mean, there's so many things which are just really, really strange about, about if you like, the philosophy of language, Norm Chomsky's concept of what language is, which I can't relate to. Um, But my my point is that as soon as you approach this issue uh, as an anthropologist, uh, which is what I am, an anthropologist, when you go to a, a tribe... You don't, when you hear the shaman um, chanting what might sound to an outsider kind of a bit strange, a bit incomprehensible, what you don't do is you don't say it's nonsense. That's what you don't do. You say, why does this particular chanting, why do these particular formulations make sense in this particular community, in this particular place and time? So what you might might think of as complete nonsense, and I do think a lot of those ideas I've just mentioned are complete nonsense, They must have made sense at the time they were developed. And there must have been a very good reason why um, the intellectual community at MIT celebrated these ideas and ran with them, and why it was that on the basis of these ideas, Noam Chomsky became the world's um, leading uh, theoretical uh, linguist. So let me just go through some of these points. Um, This is Noam's, for those of you who haven't read the book, this is Noam's um, response to my chapter. Um, And he, he, he's so irate (laughs) (laughs) that he won't respond to me in the book in the way he responds to Jackie Walker and Milan Rye and Craig Murray and the others. He has to have an appendix with a sort of line to say, I've skipped Chris Knight's contribution, which has no place in a serious discussion of the responsibility of intellectuals. And then he says, Knight focuses on my malevolent contributions to the imperial military machine. Um, he provides not a particle of evidence. I'm not. I don't think Noam Chomsky did actually contribute to the manufacture of, of command and control systems for weaponry. But he, that was his. That was what he was supposed to be. That was his job. Um, and there's, uh, you, I mean, the evidence is just overwhelmingly that that's the case, uh, particle or not. Uh, and then, of course, deceit so petty that one can only gasp in disbelief. Knights vulgar exercises of defamation. His heroic <laughs> effort to confuse the issue carefully contrived deceit, web of deceit and misinformation, Knight concocts a fairy tale. And this is the fairy tale about Wiesner's role in creating the missile gap. Um, um, I'll, I'll come to that in a moment. Wiesner was the guy who gave them Tomsky his job. He was the main um, uh, government scientist of the Pentagon was responsible for developing the, the idea that there was a huge missile gap and so on and so forth. Uh, the defamatory tale, he spins of a leading warmonger, defamation and deceit. And then at the end of his sermon um, response, um, I apologise for wasting time and space um, on this performance. Well, you can see—I mean, you can—I mean, you can see he was holding back a bit, <laughs> <laughs> um, which is uh, good. Um, and, and, and for those of you who are interested, my, on my website, my response to Chomsky's extraordinary accusations. Um, now, the, what? 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 I mean, I, I, obviously, I can't give you the whole argument of my chapter of my book in a, in a short contribution here. But the point is that there are two Noam Chomsky's and there's there's a complete disconnect between them, which is kind of what you'd expect. You would expect, I think, a disconnect between the Noam Chomsky who spent his life fighting against the military and the Noam Chomsky whose job was to s- support the military and, and, and help them in de- developing command and control systems for their smart weapons. So this interviewer um, has actually asked him, asked Noam, you know, what happens when the when, when the one Noam Chomsky talks to the other? And no one basically says they're not on speaking terms. There's no connection. <laughs> apart from some very tenuous relations at an abstract level. And the only thing you can say is that maybe both Chomskys are interested in ideals. You know, Noam Chomsky's linguistics is very much about ideal models as opposed to conversation and the sort of concrete differences between different languages and all this stuff. And it's the same, and of course, in his politics, because obviously he's a, he's a socialist, I guess, uh, who has um, ideals. But, uh, and then when I say there are two Noam Chomsky's, I mean, this, he does say that himself. The one talent that I have, he says, which I know many other friends don't seem to have, is I've got some quirk in my brain which makes it work like separate buffers um, in a com- computer. And, and that, my view is that you would have to have separate buffers. You couldn't possibly lead those two lives without being able to disconnect the one from the other. I mean, imagine if you didn't disconnect. Imagine if while you're working for the military you feel constrained by your anti-militarist um, conscience and beliefs. Or imagine the other way around. You know, imagine while you're an anti-militarist activist, you feel a bit constrained by the fact that your your official job is to actually help the military develop their smart weapons. I mean, you'd need to disconnect the two parts of your brain, and I think Chomsky is making it very clear here that he, he actually has that particular capacity. So just, just to clarify, I mean... I can't understand why Chomsky, in his response to me, denies that military work was being done at MIT. He doesn't quite deny it, but he says, yes, of course, there was some military work being done, but it wasn't the main thing. There's also kinds of other things being done at MIT, which, of course, is true for any university. But as he says, MIT was always, since I got here in the 50s, always entirely funded by the Pentagon, There wasn't any classified work on campus, but it was two inches off campus. Um, The labs right next door were doing classified work and people worked between uh, them all the time. Uh, Or again, there was extensive weapons research on the MIT campus. There were laboratories at MIT that were involved, for example, in the development of the technology that's used for ballistic missiles and so on. In fact, a good deal of the missile guidance technology was developed right at the MIT campus and in laboratories run by the university. And it's the missile guidance technology, by the way, um, that Chomsky was specifically recruited to, um, to, to, to explore and pursue. And, and this, is, this, is, this is from his essay, the one we were celebrating um, today. The question, what have I done, is one that we may well ask ourselves as we read each day of fresh atrocities in Vietnam, as we create or mouth or tolerate the deceptions that will be used to justify the next defence of freedom. Well, I suppose what I'm just saying is you can, you can imagine the, the conflict, the pressures, that Noam must have felt. And he he described it. He he says, sometimes I I need to be sure that when I get up in the morning, um, I can can bear um, to look myself uh, in the mirror. mirror. I mean, you're you're working for the military. You know what the military are up to. You're an insider. And how do you you square that with your conscience? Um, And uh, so, I mean, and then, then, of course, it's just difficult for Noam because he, he has to think well of his institution, as all of us do, and it, it, when, he, when he lost his cool over my chapter, it was because I was pinpointing what the close colleagues of Noam were engaged in. And I'm I'm actually saying, I'm actually saying anyone can speak truth to power, it's oh, easy, I, you just speak truth. Power's over there, I'm over here, let's speak truth to it. But <laughs> what I'm saying is the difficult thing is when the power's up close and personal. And I think it's an extraordinary achievement of Noam that he can speak truth to power when the, when the, when the power he's speaking to are his own colleagues. But, but increasingly over the years, Noam's kind of drawn back on all that. And now he, 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 he seems to find it much simpler to actually deny um, that those colleagues of his were involved in what he himself in his early essay would have certainly described as uh, war crimes. And so he says it must have been one of the most free universities in the world no pressure, nothing of any moment at MIT, for me or other activists. And and, then we've just seen the film. I mean, you know, there was quite a lot of pressure, quite a lot of conflict um, going on. Seven activists are injured, six in prison, some for the MIT classes. Into the mic. mic. Oh, sorry, yes, sorry, yeah. So, I mean, okay, yes, that's a good good point. So, um, I mean, there was a lot going on at MIT, and as far as the students at the time were concerned, in, in 69 in particular, um, they, were, they, were, they, were, they were up against riot cops brought in by management, uh, and um, it, was, it was all quite serious. And these, these pictures you've kind of seen in the video. And here it's now making it very clear what was going on. I've been in an electronics laboratory for the last 30 years, largely because there were no vested interests there. And the director, Jerome Wiesner, was willing to take a chance on some odd ideas that looked as if they might be intriguing. Well, that's one way of putting it. Um, <laughs> But, I mean, Wiesner was director of MIT's laboratory, electronics lab in the 50s. He established MIT's linguistics department in 61. He was dean in the 60s and MIT president in the 70s. And this is his own words. I mean, you don't, I don't have to make them up. So this is Wiesner himself, if you like, Chomsky's boss, uh, who got him his first job. Um, uh, I was In 51, I was a member of the group that developed... Um, plans for a continental air defence system and then persuaded the de- department of defence to build it in 53 as a member of the von neumann committee i helped get the united states ballistic missile program established in the face of strong opposition from the civilian and military leaders of the air force and department of defence in 54 i helped invent and promote the distant early warning line which provided essential warning against possible bomber attacks for both the strategic air command and the air defence command i was also a proponent of the polaris missile system the ballistic missile early warning system and the satellite reconnaissance uh, systems. So, I mean, he was a scientist, but he was also a very important political figure. You can see how heavily involved he was in, in this military research. And then, but in his reply to me, Noam Chomsky t- uh, treats him as a disarmament activist. Um, I mean, it's true that there are sort of liberals and hawks. So there's, a, there's a certain sense in which um, Jerome Wiesner at a certain point thought we were going a bit too far with these nuclear missiles. We I mean, maybe, maybe cut down on them a bit, but to describe him as um, as, as, a, as a sort of piecenic um, is uh, a little bit um, odd, in my view. And that's, that's Wiesner sitting down there um, at the White House meeting during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Obviously, uh, the point I'm making here is Chomsky's closest colleagues and friends, were cl- very close to power. Speaking truth to power m- would mean speaking truth to people really in the heart of, of the state. Um, and, but then of course he says, that although, that although I was in a military lab, um, and if you take a look at my early publications, they all say something about Air Force, Navy, and so on, because I was in a military lab. The military's research interests had nothing at all to do with our studies of universal um, grammar. Um, so I just need to make clear. there's no doubt about it at all. I'll show you in a, in a minute um, to flesh it out a tiny bit. What the military were hoping from for, for from Chomsky was this. they wanted to be able to speak ordinary language, English, French, Russian, whatever, to their smart weapons. They wanted to be able to their, their, their dream was to be able to shout at the missile and say, get them Viet Cong, no right, no lefty with it, no hit them there, just talk in the vernacular as opposed to using computer code and if, if somehow you could discover the underlying code of all the world's languages it might be possible to do that. You might be able to fix universal grammar in the nose cone of a missile and therefore you wouldn't need any longer to have com- sophisticated um, command of mastery of, of, of you know, com- 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 computer speak, you could just use the vernacular, whatever the, your vernacular was and you could just talk to the machines and they would do what you instructed them to do. And so, this is the MITRE Corporation. And the MITRE Corporation was the part of MIT sort of divested with a particular job of turning theory into practice, actually developing designs for actual um, we- weapons command and control. So, um, uh, just the, 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 the um, a- underlying bits a number of command language projects are in process as part of MITRE's applied research efforts. Um, for com- command and control systems, um, and then further down the red lines there, this work involves the application of a logical mathematical formulation of linguistic structure developed by Noam Chomsky and his associates at MIT. Um, and uh, these are the kind of sentences they were using. So one of Chomsky's students, Lieutenant Jay Kiser, was publishing an article on how to use Noam's theories to communicate with computers in English. Planes fly sorties. Planes are B-58s. Planes are on bases. B-58s will refuel. B-58s must be on base. Um, this is the kind of linguistics which was which was being done um, by Chomsky's students at the time. And this is—I I wrote to Barbara Party, one of Chomsky's students at the time, to ask what she thought was going on. And, and this is a rather funny way of putting it, but uh, I think it's very accurate. In the event of a nuclear war. The generals would be underground with some computers trying to manage things, and it would probably be easier to teach computers to understand English than to teach the generals uh, to program. <laughs> um, and here we have semi-automatic ground environment, <coughs> control room, MITRE's first project for the air defense against Soviet bombers. And Chomsky works as a consultant on the MITRE command and control project between 63 and 65. This is the MITRE corpora- corporation <coughs> on the right here, Chomsky's um, signature as a, as a consultant. developing a program to establish natural language as an operational language for command and um, control. Now, what on the left there, this is Chomsky's response to me, MITRE does, in fact, do military work along with much else. It just isn't true for the 60s. Thank you. Um, uh, I mean, Chomsky could only say that if he didn't know about MITRE's own recruitment adverts. In 63 Mest's principal job is the design and development of more effective military command and control systems. Mightest' prime mission to design, develop, and help put into operation global command and control systems for national um, defense. Uh, and the most ambitious of these programs uh, is Noam Chomsky's. Um, and just to, just to say a little bit more. I mean one of the other people I, I mentioned in, in my chapter is. Um, Um, is is John Deutsch, um, who became um, uh, head of the the CIA. Uh, On the left there, John Deutsch, says "Chomsky has more honesty and integrity than anyone I've ever met in academic life or any other life. If somebody's got to be running the CIA, I'm glad it's him. And then we were actually friends and got along fine, although we disagreed on about as many things as two human beings can disagree about. I liked him. Um, and, uh, and I end my chapter, or at least my response on my website to what Noam's saying with, with these words, which are Noam's own. I mean, Noam knows perfectly well <laughs> what's going on, even if he finds it a little bit difficult to apply it to himself. And so this is, this is very good. We're all familiar with it in our own lives. You have interests and perceived needs, and you figure out ways of dealing with them. And unless you're a total cynic, which few people are, you construct a belief system which justifies them. Very few people are capable of saying one thing and believing another, or doing something that they recognise as completely cynical um, and immoral, um, um, immoral. So this is a—I mentioned this before. Just, just getting back to that, you really do have to split yourself in two, and it seems to me that has done that pretty well. Um, but I mean, you know, why does—why does, why does that—why does that lessen my respect for Noam? It actually—it it doesn't. Um, he was absolutely astonishing in, se- in 1970 speaking here, here in defense of the Black Panthers. I mean how many other intellectuals, let alone, let alone intellectuals working for the military, would have been def- defending the Black Panthers in, in 1970? There's no much more recently, it's an occupy Boston. I think it's an occupied uh, occupied um, Boston mass meeting. Um, and uh, I just wanted to end by saying. Um, very briefly, I mean, time I mentioned it to begin with, I, I, I do want to say just a couple of things um, to make very clear my position on, on Jackie, because I want, to, I, want, I want to take the pressure off Jackie. I know what Jackie wants to speak about. It's not about anti-Semitism and all the issues which have been coming up in the press. It's not about those issues. Um, and so here's Noem's response. If you just cut the lights on off again, just these lights particularly. This is Noem's response to the guidelines which we were initially um, presented with, uh, the way, um, as Tame I mentioned. There was some pressure, and the pressure ended up with us being told that we just couldn't say a whole lot of things. And Chomsky himself, again, I mean, brilliant that he said all this, and it helped us an- enormously. I, would re- I rejected all these conditions for two reasons. Um, do I need to read all this out? First, why bring up anti-Semitism and not Islamophobia? Perhaps we'll leave out some of it. But I'm frankly at a loss for words, he says. Beyond that, there happens to be solid... We were told we, we couldn't... One of the one of the guidelines was people can exaggerate, but if you're a Jewish group and you, you, you... Exaggeration is inconceivable. So if a Jewish group was to exaggerate claims of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, that must in itself be anti-Semitic. Um, really quite extraordinary. Um, um, and um, so, I mean, and this is finally Noam Chomsky on, actually on Jackie as well as on Chris Williamson. Um, so that down at the bottom there is just, just this summer actually at the Labour Party conference, Chris Williamson with Jackie, um, with, with Jackie Walker. The way charges of anti-Semitism are being used in Britain to undermine the Corbyn-led Labour Party is not only a disgrace, but also, to put it simply, an insult to the memory of the victims of the Holocaust. The charges against Chris Williamson are a case in point. There's nothing even remotely anti-Semitic in this statement that Labour has given too much ground and been too apologetic in defending its record of addressing the scourge of anti-Semitism beyond that of any other party as he himself has done on public occasions and in the streets. So um, that's it. That's my book. Um, Thanks for listening. Um, As you can see, quite a conflict going on. It doesn't in the smallest bit lessen my huge admiration for one of those Noam Chomsky's, the one that most of you know about. The other Noam Chomsky you probably don't know too much about. And actually, when activists ask Noam, um, oh, Noam, we feel very inspired by your politics. Should we perhaps follow up your linguistics? Quite honestly and correctly, Noam always says, no, no, it won't help. My linguistics has got nothing to do with your political ideals. That is absolutely correct. Thank you.
0: Thank you, um, Chris, uh, and thank you for articulating your position so clearly in the book. Um, I will say that we will want, please, to keep the discussion not to the internal politics of the Labour Party. We're not here to discuss the internal politics of the Labour Party. We're here to discuss the issues that rise from this book, and I'm going to ask you, please, all um, to keep that uh, in mind. And over to you, Jackie.
4: Um, Let me see, I I think I might have to adjust this because I'm slightly smaller than
0: Chris.
4: (laughs) Thank you. So I've kind of named this thinking about what the theme of Chomsky's essay was about, which is about the responsibility of intellectuals, what price truth And I have to say before I start that it it kind of feels like an achievement already to have got this far, i.e. to have put on the conference and not just to have put on the conference and that wasn't down to me at all, but to have had this book published by UCL and to actually achieve the launch in UCL, somewhere that has always been seen as as a home of academic free speech. And I really, really have to sincerely thank the staff of UCL, who have fought and supported me in this, not just politically, but with their best wishes. And I really want to say thank you for that. I'm really going to speak to what my essay is. Um, I suppose what I'm going to be doing is kind of developing some of the ideas in there. And to start with, I have to make a statement about myself. Because I'm a person described, at least in polite company, as being of diverse heritage. Now, we in this country, ostensibly, we celebrate diversity. But in fact, there's more than that going on, isn't there? especially when nationalisms and xenophobia are on the rise, my actual identity appears to act directly as a challenge for some. I'm of Jewish and African heritage, with a small amount of Irish, Scottish and Scandinavian thrown in. And my ancestors were victims of pogroms. They were survivors of genocide, purveyors of knowledge, profiteers, writers, dancers, thinkers, enablers of slavery, storytellers and bards. They experienced the most vicious vicious form of chattel slavery that built the modern world we now inhabit. They were made wealthy on the back of the exploited, They were starved, beaten, were poor, excluded, and oppressed, as well as victims of Holocaust. I claim it all. And my history, that history, is both gift and curse. And it is the very basis of my intellectual and my creative work. The title of my chapter in the Responsibility of Intellectuals 50 years on, is I Don't Want No Peace. And it's taken from a track that was written by reggae legend Peter Tosh, a musician, political activist, and I would say also a black intellectual. And this was my point. In Euro-American societies where people of color, as well as other marginalized groups, are in fact excluded from power, Even the term intellectual needs to be reconfigured because apart from a few often tokenistic gestures, oppressed people do not have their words disseminated. They don't win prizes and they're not part of the ruling elite. My call in this paper was for a fundamental reinterpretation of what it means to be an intellectual, for a reintegration of thought and theory with political action. It was a call for intellectuals to get out of the classrooms and onto the streets, and for the intellectuals of the streets to actually vouch and be proud of their intellectual capability of looking at what's happening in society today and tell the truth about it. So this chapter, while a theoretical exploration, was also personally prophetic. Perhaps given the challenge which my identity appears to pose for some, and the politics I espouse, that's not surprising. Apart from finding a profound personal peace within myself in the last few years, peace is not and will never be a state, I suspect, that will be something familiar to me. Because in any case, telling the truth from the standpoint of the marginalized, whether to the powerless or to the powerful, is never going to get you any establishment friends. So two years ago when I spoke at the Chomsky Conference, I was still holding on to some fantasy of what the liberal society had to offer people like me. I had yet to fully appreciate the complicity and the brutality of the mainstream media. I had yet to understand the cowardice and of ambitions of those whose role it is to speak out. I didn't understand how far the poison had reached. The corruption of political organizations, of watchdogs, of institutions and structures that are meant to act as our guardians and the guardians of any liberal and equal society I hadn't yet got how bad it was and here I'm going to make a small but I think really necessary diversion. As much as I don't want no peace is a response to the complexities of the very notion of intellectuals and their responsibility, I need to clarify here what I understand as oppression. And this is particularly pertinent at a time when identity politics has shifted discussions on race, at least in the media and in the political sphere, away from political power relationships and onto the more sort of digestible and palatable vocabulary of individual feelings. A place where evidence is actually not essential in fact a place where at times Evidence is apparently an impediment and asking for evidence becomes an outrageous and abusive demand in relation to the hurt of the victim Now, this is a climate where racism can be manipulated weaponized Emptied out of its relationship to power and powerlessness. And used by some of the most obviously reactionary forces. And we don't have to really think very hard to understand how that's worked. You know, when we see Nigel Farage talking about himself as being an anti-racist or rags like the Daily Mail championing certain forms of anti-racism as their own. Only in this climate could a head teacher of a UK public school liken criticisms of private education to racist abuse. Or could a member of the upper class super rich claim criticism of their lifestyle was in fact a form of racism. Now, the ludicrousness, the madness of what we have approached. And if you don't understand the truth of what I'm saying, then I think you really need to think about where we're at at this point. So let's remember uh, the lessons that we have been taught through time, time and time again. Because you can spot oppressed groups. It's not really that hard. Because they will be underrepresented in the media. They'll be underrepresented in politics, in the commanding heights of industry. In fact, they'll be underrepresented in all positions of power. Their histories will be unspoken, twisted, and degraded, their leaders will be undermined and worse. They, and the causes they espouse, will be derided and misreported, (laughs) if reported at all. Because oppression, like racism, is essentially about power. Those who have it and those who don't and whether or not we will admit it in fact we all know the rules if you're black and you want to get on you have to have white patronage and you mustn't step out of line and you have to keep the gatekeepers happy and of course the gatekeepers are going to be white we all know what happens to black people who raise their heads above the parapet. They will have it, and let me just emphasize here, I'm talking metaphorically because sometimes people have misunderstood when I've spoken metaphorically, they will have their heads blown off. They won't be invited onto woman's hour. They won't have their pictures on the front pages. They won't be put on what sometimes appear to be endless loops of Radio 4 news broadcasts as they pour out their heart on the trauma of their historical, not even their remembered, but their historical oppression, before stepping back into their life of easy privilege. And even the very few black people who do achieve some form of power They will become the target of almost hysterical criticism and abuse. And you know, just look what's happened to Diane Abbott. In the run up to the general election, she received almost half of all the total abusive tweets sent to all female MPs. In the previous six months, she received a third. Of all the abuse sent to all MPs. Female MPs of colour received 35% more abusive tweets than their white colleagues of whatever background, even when Abbott was excluded from the total. That's what we're talking about. That's the truth. That's the reality. And the research hasn't even started yet on the response to Meghan Markle. (laughs) Whatever our responses are to royalty, there's something very troubling going on with the way that the media is actually responding to her. We all know this. Well, at least some of us do. And we all know the hypocrisy of world leaders trekking across continents in a rush to defend the simple and essential right to offend after the Charlie Hebdo killings, when, to just pick out one of too many examples, just a few weeks ago, during the Labour Party Conference in Brighton, left groups were having venues cancelled one after the other, when the launch of an academic peer-reviewed book at Waterstones was shut down, all after torrents of threats and abuse against staff and customers were received. I'm sure most people here didn't hear about that. No? I'm sure... It's hard to know about these things when our mainstream media are silent, as are are our leaders, because that is how it works. That's how exclusion works. That's what black people have been struggling with for centuries. Their histories ignored, their experiences, their murder, the brutality of the state and institutions against them, not reported. They do not exist. Now I meet people all the time and of course many of them are black and they tend to say the same thing and they tend to do the same thing. They kind of run up to me, a kind of almost as if I'm just about to disappear. And they, um, they usually thank me for speaking out and say things like, thank God you're doing it because somebody has to. But one thing they always make plain to me is that they will never enter the political or public arena. And there's very obvious reasons why. They've seen what happens and they know why it happens. Now, that's not to say that we, either as black people, as marginalized people, as people trying to change the world, that the task in front of us is an impossible one. But, as my school students used to say, in fact, they used to complain of when I was a teacher and trying to get them to write an uh, an essay, they used to say to me, Miss, do we have to? It's so long, and I agree with them. Change takes a long time. And from the short perspective of most of our lifespans, change sometimes proceeds at what feels like a snail's pace. And then again, suddenly, things seem to change extremely quickly. I mean, look what happened with Corbyn. Sometimes there are seismic shifts. And to be sure, things have changed for people of color in this country too. London is not the same city where me and my family landed with a a suitcase and five pounds in our pockets when we stepped off the boat in 1959. So yes, change happens, but it's not an even sort of change, and it's not a stable or set change. Changes have to be defended, and there are backward steps like we're seeing now at this point when the forces of reaction up their game and they kind of put on new clothes, you know, They're pro-gay rights. They're anti-racists. And they do this, they do this in order to shut down and contain the core of change and the threat of change which in fact they find intolerable. So real change is hard and it costs. How long after all did it take for women to get actual access to the academy, how long did it take to make racism at least officially illegal in the UK, how long to end slavery and who knows the names of the British women who were ridiculed for leading the very first and perhaps the most effective economic boycott against overseas oppression in the 18th century. All these campaigns, and more besides, changed our world, giving opportunities that our mothers and our mothers' mothers never had. And yet most of us would find it difficult to name all but a handful of the leaders of these epic battles. Now, of course, leaders are important to any movement, as are intellectuals or shall I say professional intellectuals, though in truth leaders are so much more palatable for the establishments once they're dead or old. So for example, today Martin Luther King is hailed as an American hero, but before he was murdered, his life was made hell by hate campaigns, by misreporting, by smearing and the kind of elegant undermining that cloaks the rabid racism of the establishment. For example, the New York Times uh, instructed King that he should keep his battleground to Chicago, Harlem, and Watts. King, they said, should be free to think about Vietnam He should be free even to think about poverty in general. But as a leader of black people, he needed to remember his place and direct his efforts in a more relevant way. More recently, Angela Davis was also reminded of her place when the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute in Alabama rescinded an honor for a lifetime of intellectual and political endeavor because of her support for the Palestinians. The message is clear and it's repeated. We will tolerate black intellectuals as long as you keep our peace and stay in your political ghetto. But in any case, what do the greats have to do with our lives, with our ordinary political and intellectual struggles. And let us remember at this point that the real existential threat we are facing at the moment is the rise of nationalism, the rise of populism, hatred of the other, and the global destruction of climate change which our leaders are still steering us towards. On this point about leaders, I have to say, I think we got this wrong. We don't stand on the shoulders of giants. However great they are or were, in fact, the great stand on our shoulders, on the shoulders of the mass of unknown unremarkable, unremembered men and women who enable the greats to intervene, to represent, to make revolutionary change. Now, I'd like to say that in the last two years, in reflection, things have got better, that not only are there more intellectual speaking out, but that they're being reported and listened to and that freedom of speech has been secured I'd love to say that, but it wouldn't be true. Two years ago, I wrote of the depths into which the politics of the so-called free world had fallen, utilizing the worst that human nature could excrete to elect Donald Trump. But the recent coronation of Trump's British alter ego, Boris Johnson, backed by a corrupt media and fred from the familiar noxious sentiments of all popularists xenophobia racism and self-interest tells me we haven't yet reached the bottom and today we are facing an election where the calls to make britain great again will be used to attempt to elect what could well be a carnival of reaction, oppression, and deprivation. So my call today is bigger and wider than it was two years ago. Whether you see yourselves as intellectuals or not, it's irrelevant. Whoever you are, whoever we are, We need to rise like lions to face this situation. Thank you.
5: Thank you very much. Is that audible?
3: Yeah, closer. So this is one of the other. For those
0: of you who came in late, the volume is, sorry, I'll just talk here. The volume is edited by three um, people, and Neil Smith is one of them, and he's going to talk from the front row. Yeah?
5: OK. Thank you very much. I didn't know until this afternoon that I was going to come or even say anything. And maybe I shouldn't have but I haven't therefore got scintillating polished phrases to utter for you but I can give you some personal reminiscences and some critical remarks about what's been said I'm a linguist a linguist of the Chomskyan persuasion and in 1966 having lost all the linguistics arguments in this country I went to MIT to work with Chomsky and see what he was doing and I was captivated by the scintillating intellect that I was shown, but more interestingly, in many ways than that, was the fact that simultaneously, is this not?
0: You've got to go. Yeah, got
5: a sign from the back that they can't hear you, so you just need to. Put it the first yeah. I'm Just
0: going to do that. And Shall I come round the this one? Let's see if these work. Just say yeah. if you can't hear at the back.
2: Is that
5: better? Is
0: that better? No. Okay, can I ask you to come can you Yeah, come sure. bring yeah, it. Right. We are recording, we are recording. I'm sorry you can't you can't record recording. good your camera is off it's off off, off. I can spell that's fine <laughs> so speak speak. I'm, sorry, I'm sorry really it's unnecessary thank you
5: I'll try again how's that right. okay even at the back so simultaneously with Chomsky's lectures on linguistics he was giving lectures on politics on resistance to various different movements and in particular he was involved in the Vietnam War and these lectures with Louis Kampf blew my mind in a way that his linguistics had blown it in a different direction it was crucial that we discovered the truth. The truth about what was going on. Because previously I had been young and naive and had believed what the Daily Telegraph said. <laughs> Seems impossible now. But from DMBN Foo to the Tet Offensive, the gloss put upon it by the Western papers was appalling. And that taught me to be sceptical of everything and it made me skeptical for instance about much of what Chris was saying earlier Chris and I disagree radically I think he's wrong about the nature of language that there's a radical disagreement there and it's because of that disagreement that he has problems with interpreting Chomsky's dual personality if I can call it that I also think Chomsky is wrong to say that there is no systematic cohesion between the different facets of his work and in a book that I wrote with Nick or first by myself, Chomsky, Ideas and Ideals I tried to spell out what the various different notions were that united his linguistics work with his radical activism these are notions like modularity, rationality and various others that are spelled out in detail so I also think that it's naive to say that one should talk or speak truth to power I think one of the things that Chomsky has shown us is that you need to speak truth to the powerless because by demonstrating that they have really got power as John Stuart Mill told us originally you can give them a basis for intellectual self-defense and a basis for confronting the miseries of the powerful it's also the case that there are a range of other activist loci that one could concentrate on the corporatization of the universities in this country the attempt by the powerful to subvert what constitutes normal human behavior if you look at page 20 of the new book in an article by My Son and Me we quote liberty and its tirades against the use of government offices to try and make school teachers report on school children nurses to report on their patients and every other kind of misconception of what the role of these different people in society should be I did have a few notes and I think I've lost them but I can't read my own writing anyway (laughs) Chomsky's other work, that is, his non-linguistic work, which is what I consider it to be, is amazingly broad. When I went to MIT, the focus was on Vietnam, and it's been on Vietnam and similar episodes ever since. But fewer people know that he's worked systematically on pig farming in Haiti, on rice farming, in Liberia on the drug trade on the banking fraternity and in all these cases he has something perspicacious to say and he looks not only at these areas but also at a huge range of countries other than the famous ones like Vietnam and Laos in the book Ideas and Ideals I listed 50 countries that Chomsky said interesting things about and I showed this to him before it was published and he demurred and said, I didn't have much to say about Burundi (laughs) (laughs) this is typical
3: Uh,
5: well, we can come to that So if we come more closely to date I am reminded of the fact that although I went to MIT as a linguist the first off-print or article by him that Chomsky gave me was the responsibility of intellectuals 50 years later, he is still showing us what to do and where to pin up colors to the mast. His support for people like Edward Snowden, his claim that you should always speak the truth and reveal lies is as important to us today as it was 50 years ago. He's 90. He's still an inspiration.
0: Well, thank you very much to all our speakers. I'm very moved by the passion and by the intellectual commitment, by the capacity for disagreement and debate uh, that you've shown us tonight and in that spirit I would like to open up the um, discussion. ask you please uh, to identify yourselves to stand. Um, my colleague Albert will come around with a microphone uh, please to try and use this as an opportunity to ask a question rather than to make a speech and uh, to be brief so that we can get as many people contributing um, as possible. So yes the gentleman here in the front okay see. Please, if you wouldn't mind
3: identifying yourself. Okay, yes, uh, Les Labadeau. I wear many hats, so I won't bore you with them. As Chris said, it's easy to speak truth to a power which is distant, where where the stakes are low. So I want to just give a couple examples as a basis for a question to to both the speakers, the first two speakers. The title of this event and the book comes from one of the most important political essays. There's a big echo in Yeah, I'm
0: just you know, trying
3: to fix it. From 50 years ago, which has, was reprinted in many places um, in the subsequent decade. And it's a masterpiece of critically anal- analyzing how prominent social science people, really, Sanitized the imperial project, its war machine, its plunder, sanitized it as beneficial development, as self defense, etc., etc. So it's a good model from which we all can still learn a half a century later. I learned from it back then. But it says nothing about any of the scientists who were running the military programs. And when Chomsky was explicitly asked about the politics of science and technology, an idea which had become commonplace by then, he said science and technology has no politics. So this this became a taboo for him. That's how he managed this strange contradiction between his political life and his, his, his academic life. So that's, that's just an example of a taboo, which may be sp- specific to him, but I think it's more general about science and technology seeing as apolitical. And then the, another example comes from one of the taboos that were laid down by the UCL administration for this meeting that you you must not use anti-Semitic tropes such as the idea that- I'm sorry, those
0: have been superseded, so I think it's really unnecessary because okay. those are no longer operative in this yeah, event. Yes. Yeah, but, so can you but, but, get to the question?
3: Yeah, yeah but, well, it's not operative here, but it's still operative because the Labour Party leadership asked all its branches not to talk about the weaponization of anti-Semitism, right? Huh, what, that was about a year ago. So there's something very sensitive and strange about this concept.
0: But
4: we've precisely uh, so, moved so,
3: away so, from so, that. Well, no, we're not going away. We, we have, so I'm giving examples of two taboos which have great political force and enforced by a, an unlikely source in this case. So I want to ask you know, both the speakers to comment on these taboos or other taboos that really Frighten people, intimidate people to stay silent and not speak truth to power. Okay. Um, should
0: we take one more question and then we'll answer the two together? Gentleman in the front.
6: Uh, thank you very much. My name is Sam Sagar. All the way from Uganda, originally East Africa, the cradle of human being and therefore humanity. Understand that? Humanity of which we black people have been negated humanity. And therefore, all I want to say is that when uh, I look at Chomsky as a former scientist, military, and then a linguist, and talks about uh, linguists as a universality, has he considered then Universally, if he says he hasn't talked about Bologna, does he understand the culture, the language of the Bolognians or the, the ethics and the forces of the in order to define or to understand what he has? Because the West here, or the Western culture, is saying that they are so confident and completely blinded the truth that they accept to define other cultures which they do nothing about. They don't know nothing about, it, but they assume they know better. Which is very, very, very controversial and that's what is going to bring the third world on, Because we, in Africa, as we are concerned, Mandela, who talked about he's a sinner who tries to do the best. He's a sinner who tries. Nobody, nobody in this world, apart from Jesus, who came to this world, and never did anything wrong, but the rest of humanity is very- I'm prepared. sorry, sir. So you have to and come so to my point, My point is, my point is, madam, have have respect, especially when you see this lady fighting all the power that be I have seen very many colleagues, so-called socialists in the Labour Party, completely you know, you know, complete unsympathetic to have Christ for help. I have seen, and I know most about we people, political activists, we in the Labour Party, and everywhere, including who are, who, are, who are not frightened, but who are completely unable to be listened to. Okay, That's very serious argument in, in of, of the British that, people you. who say in the pretense.
0: Thank yeah. you. Um, do you want to take one more question, or do you want yeah. to respond to this, two? we take one more? I think there was a person at the back there. Thank
3: you.
7: Hi, um, I'm Alex, I'm the president of UCL Jewish Society. Um, And this question is to Jackie. Um, So you claim that you're uh, vehement anti-racist, but I seem to have a problem with such definition because to me, an anti-racist is somebody who fights against all racism, um, no matter what the form is. Um, You know, I came here today, I found this piece of paper on the chair. You attempted to... um, You've attempted to explain and defend yourself, but I can find a few more examples of times where I feel that this defense doesn't quite hold up. Um, You know, you've questioned the need for um, Jewish schools and synagogues to have their own security at their events. I would like to draw to the examples in the last calendar year, three of them of attacks, fatal attacks on synagogues. Um, To me, that seems like something. That would be a reason why they need their own security. I've seen you say, um, I've seen you belittle um, Holocaust Remembrance Day with false accusations about how it doesn't do enough to, um, it doesn't do enough to le- to talk about the other um, genocides and Holocaust that are, sorry, the last uh, two, peop- the last two sorry, people, excuse the me. last two people in this room have spent over five minutes explaining their points. I think I'm entitled to sorry, exactly um, the excuse same.
0: Excuse me, Al it. would you let the man finish with his question please?
7: Um, you've belittled Holocaust Remembrance Day on a completely false premise that it doesn't um, talk about other genocides and Holocaust yet. Um, and, um, you know, to do, and then yet on their website, on the very front page of their website, it directly mentions those things that you claim it doesn't do. And... Thirdly, you claim that the Jewish people have exploited the Holocaust um, for their own Zionistic gains. Um, It's clear to me that either you are a really unlucky anti-racist or a hypocrite. Thank you. A
0: hypocrite.
7: A hypocrite.
0: Um, okay, we've had three very different questions and three very different challenges, um, so I'm going to ask our speakers, if you wouldn't mind, to take them in whichever order you prefer. Okay. And can I ask members of the audience to restrain themselves, because I'm sure our speakers can actually handle whatever questions come to them yeah. politely. Please, please don't
4: worry about protecting me, I think I've had much rougher audiences than this one is.
0: Really, we really don't need that. Let's just let them speak and take on the questions.
4: Okay, I'm going to use.
0: I'm going to use this
4: one. Um, I'm going to take this last question first. I mean, apart from the the kind of incivility of the question and the and the Jonathan Hoffman, you have you you have already been convicted for
0: harassing people can you please excuse me would security please come and and remove yeah. mr hoffman if he doesn't keep quiet mr hoffman are you going to keep quiet and let her answer if not i'm going to ask security to remove you from the room she said the question was not civil i'm sorry but you are not being civil it is her chance to talk and would you not he doesn't need your defense he was perfectly eloquent the person who asked the question thank you oh. shh, shh, shh. please
4: I've already had to spend time protecting Jonathan Hoffman from an audience two years ago. I don't want to have to do it again. Um, You know, obviously, what I'm going to say to you is you say you have seen me. You haven't seen me. We've never met before. We've never, in fact, got into dialogue. I mean, one of the problems that I find is it's a very strange thing when somebody who's accused of the most heinous offences in terms of being a racist, you know, it's the next thing to being a rapist, really, is also excluded from defending themselves. I remember, in fact, um, a leading figure in uh, uh, what's called Jewish community groups suggesting that I should come to a synagogue to defend myself. And I said, any time, any time, he went silent, because the last thing I find that people want is actual actual dialogue. Now, let's just take some of these examples. And I'm sorry if I take a bit of time, but I I do think that was quite an aggressive question towards me. If you look on Holocaust Memorial Day and please do, and everybody please do, what it commemorates is genocides post-Nazis. Post-Nazis. What that means is if you're an indigenous person of the Americas whose genocide was actually so appalling, it caused a blip in terms of the global climate if you're a survivor of the African Holocaust, your genocide is not mentioned. Thank you, I mean, I could go on, but that's my point. So please do go, and I would ask you, do tell me why we only commemorate genocides post-Nazis, when only 30 years before that, 12 million African people in the Belgian Congo were murdered by King Leopold. So please explain to me, please justify to me ethically what that is about. Yeah, he is. Of course he's, of course he's recording it, and it's, oh stop it, for goodness
0: sake, stop your nonsense, of course he's recording it. Um, Can I just say, please, everybody, this is a university environment in which we are really trying to protect everybody's right to speech and to engage properly in debate. We really don't need people uh, recording, spying, using these things for their own purposes. Can we just maintain an atmosphere of civil and civilized interchange without any of that? As I said at the beginning, we will supply a recording. Everything is being recorded. There's no need for anyone to record this surreptitiously. And if you're going to do that, I'm afraid I'm going to have you removed. Now, I'm going to ask you, Jackie, to to continue the uh, uh, answering, and then I'm going to ask the other speakers as well to come in.
4: Um, I'm not going to refute every single claim that you have made I have said, because you've obviously got your, your information probably from the Jewish Chronicle. They're probably recording it at this point as well. Or certainly from the mainstream media who lie upon lie about me. But if we just take another issue that you've raised in terms of the security of synagogues and Jewish schools. Again, there are people here who were at that meeting who will tell you that that film was edited and cut. And I suggest if you actually want to know the truth, that perhaps those people could put their hands up, people who were at that meeting, and you could go and speak to them about what was said. And I actually plead to you I make a plea to you, first of all, as people who are proud to be Jewish, make that claim and be proud of the Jewish traditions of debate and dialogue and tolerance and diversity, because that's what makes me proud of my Jewish heritage. Just just to finish, just very quickly in terms of what you were saying. I mean, we're at a point of the the most deep McCarthyite atmosphere that this country, I think, has ever seen, where certain histories are forbidden. You know, in England, in the Labour Party, if you call what happened to Africans a holocaust, you'll be suspended you will be suspended from the Labour Party. It doesn't matter that the term Holocaust was actually first, in fact, termed by a black person in the 1920s to refer to lynching. Because suddenly and somehow, words have been adopted and privatized and I will not have that. I will speak about my history exactly how I want to speak about my history, and I give you the dignity and respect to do the same. But this McCarthyism is a terrifying time. And if we actually believe in the values of a free society, then let us debate those issues in a free way. And let us not have organizations shutting down meetings. Let us not have organizations being threatened for having meetings. Let us not have a newspaper and media service that will never, ever come and give an alternative view or an opinion from anybody else
1: well i I think I could vaguely remember the questions <laughs> so I'll start with les so les was mentioning um two taboos and i- possibly just to hurry things up i'll 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 focus just on the first um uh, taboo so and the, the taboo um, les was talking about is one which Noam Chomsky observes with respect to scientists' involvement <laughs> in war crimes um and it's it's true that when Noam has listed um, criminals, it's just remarkable how, <laughs> how he excludes from that category of criminality scientists, such as, for example, as I mentioned, John Deutsch. Now, John Deutsch was a, a, a friend of Noam Chomsky's. And what I wrote in my chapter was this fact, which is John Deutsch's specialism was biological warfare. He introduced biological warfare, research into biological warfare, into MIT, and that was his thing. There's absolutely no doubt about it. No one can possibly dispute it. But when I, just, when I mentioned this fact in my chapter in the book, this was one of the things which Noam used to accuse me of defamation. I'm, I'm defaming um, John Deutsch, who, who later became um, director of the CIA, because I said he's involved in, in biological warfare, which, which, I mean, honestly, just look it up, he, he was. Or again, you know, um Wiesner, who's, um, um uh, 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 it's slightly different specialism, of course, but Wiesner's linguistics was all about command and control systems to, to be used in guiding um, what eventually became nuclear missiles. So, um, so, but, um, so there is a there is a, a, a taboo operating there now. What the effect of this is? So what I'm what I'm saying is that we have this post-war sort of settlement where you have a thing called science over here. And you have another thing called humanities and activism and politics over here. And there's a a radical disconnect. And what what I'm I'm showing is that, I mean, you can't blame one person. You certainly can't blame Noam Chomsky for the widespread view that scientists can't get involved in politics. But there is a very widespread view that collectively scientists shouldn't engage in politics. Um, and when I said to, to Noam Chomsky in an interview I did some years ago, I said, well, Noam, what why, why don't we support scientists getting self-organized, particularly climate scientists getting self-organized and using their own voice instead of going through a whole lot of politicians to explain what's going on with the climate and the catastrophe we're heading for. And Noam's response was, if, climates, if scientists got organized, they would, they, would be, they would be working in collusion with the state. Um, which of course you could sort of understand given his location within MIT where the scientists were definitely working for the state. Um, but, but then to, 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 to kind of say that there's a, there needs to be a complete disconnect between science and politics, science being neutral, science being objective, science being beyond politics, and so that if you need to get involved in politics, you have to sort of cut yourself off from science. That is one of the, one of the, one of the most damaging interventions that Chomsky made, because in some sense, precisely because of Chomsky's moral standing and his immense moral standing, he helped to make that disconnect between science and activism a kind of model for all of us. And so scientists, until very recently, by the way, I mean, just very recently, at long last, climate scientists have begun to start getting active and actually speaking in their own name as scientists about, about time. But can you see, I mean, if, if climate scientists can't get active, can you see the, the disaster that would that will lead to. So I'm just saying that was a hugely damaging effect of Noam Chomsky's disconnect between science and activism. So that when, 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 as I say, when activists talk to Noam and say, what about your linguistics, Chomsky's attitude has always been, no, that's science. I know Neil disagrees with me. Neil's written a whole book, <laughs> "Ideals and Ideals, trying to find connections between Chomsky's science and his activism. I mean, there are sort of, as I say, there are sort of connections, but Noam himself actually quite rightly keeps saying, don't look for a connection. There is no connection between these two Noam Chomsky's, and I think think Chomsky's actually right on that. Just finally, oh, he's gone. Our African friend's gone. He's walked out. I just wanted to say my, my major interest is actually in precisely the issue of where did everything begin? Where did language begin? Where did culture begin? And what, we, what my team, and of course many others, but we increasingly we're discovering is, is completely reversed the previous conception. It was only 20 or 30 years ago that people thought, yes, human beings, we did evolve in Africa, biologically, but we only got smart when we hit Europe. So once humans evolved and became, got into Europe with the Upper Paleolithic Revolution, the Upper Paleolithic starting about 40,000 years ago, then we got art, culture, language, everything else. My team and my colleagues, Ian Watts, Camilla Power, a lot of us in, the, in, in anthropology now at, in, in, this, in, in UCL, we've, we've discovered actually that everything that makes us human—language, culture, religion, kinship—all these things are. African inventions. African people invented these amazing things, which, which set us on the road um, of, of the whole of history. So, as I, I'm sorry he's not there, but anyway, I would absolutely support his, his, his basic. I think the thrust behind this question. I wasn't quite sure at all times what the thrust was, but I think I've, I hope I've addressed it.
0: Thank you. And Neil, would you like to say something about um, uh, uh, no at this point about Chomsky and science and politics and science, or not at this point? It would take too long. It would take too long. <laughs> Um yes, and we'll take one more round of questions and then we and then, uh then i are really over time. So gentlemen over here, um, what happened to uh Oh have you got the microphone? Oh there it comes, thank you so much. And then the person here uh, and there. And we have this is just one round. Oh my God. Please can you keep them brief? No speeches, okay. a question so that we can let all these five people have their say and then we're going to have a drink.
8: (laughs) Neil, I just want to ask a question about your last answer. We seem to confuse two things. Um, One is science, scientists and politics, and the other one is the politics of science, which are not at all the same. Scientists... Are or should be moral human beings with as much right and duty to speak about politics as cleaners or mechanics or anybody else And that's separate from the politics of science about science as a human activity that inscribes the conscious or unconscious ideas of the actor within that scientific endeavor their artifacts and their creations And I'm not quite clear which one you were trying to talk about because it seemed to hover between the two. Thank you. And could you pass the mic to the person there? Yeah, and then, yeah. Hi, my name is Tiger Solomon-Tibbi. I'm a third-year history of politics and economics student. And um, I have a question as well for Jackie. So um, you were talking about the mainstream media and how they've, apparently shaped stories or changed uh, what you've said. I just, I I failed to understand why or how everything that you've said, so all of the uh, things that have been reported that uh, my friend here said, how everything can be wrong. How everyone was wrong and how you were always right and it was always false. It kind of sounds like Trump, if I remember I mean, because your answer was sort of like, um, the mainstream media lied, and it was sort of fake news, but I just don't understand how everything can be wrong.
0: Thank you. Okay, that's a question. She'll answer. Hi, my name is I'm at student, a student at SOAS, and doing social anthropology in Arabic. I really enjoyed both of your speeches all of your speeches. I found them really enlightening. Um, I just noticed two things which I thought were interesting to make a link between, and perhaps you could talk more on. Is the idea of this sort of rise of reactionary forces many of which are in this room <laughs> but also that the nuances in language and how there's an enormous sensitivity to language now and how these two things together are creating a real divide in in understandings and people are not meeting in the middle they can be understood that's sort of a, a point of con- conversation thank you two more questions the lady there and then and then we'll we'll take that. Thank you.
2: Hello, I'm Camilla Power. And I wanted to ask the panelists uh, what is their view of the responsibility of intellectuals in the face of what is currently a very serious threat of genocide for the peoples and communities, the multicultural communities of northeast Syria, many of whom have fled and being refugees from prior threats of genocide. Um, and we seem to have a conglomerate of patriarchal uh, uh, <laughs> working in combination, even though they appear to be enemies of each other, Erdogan, Trump, Putin, Assad, all of them gathered around what has been an experiment, a most extraordinary experiment of achieving democratic, peaceful coexistence with uh, a, a strong emphasis on the rights of women in the co- organizing a community, um, uh, Chomsky has been in the forefront of, um, of, of standing up amongst academics, arguing that, that it is absolutely academics that should be leading in highlighting what's going on, um, we have the mainstream media now assuming there is a ceasefire, but this is, of course, not true. Children are dying, bombed by phosphorus, produced by British industry. Um, as I speak, civilians are being massacred. As I, as I speak, the, uh, the situation of a genocidal war continues. Thank you. And final
0: question.
7: Uh, Jonathan Hoffman. Uh, we're talking about the responsibility of intellectuals here. Um, isn't one of the responsibility of intellectuals to have respect for minorities? Jackie Walker, you were thrown out of the Labour Party for anti-Semitism. How is that behaving as an intellectual?
0: Okay, um, I think that we've already had that question in some form or another, but uh, no, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop it now. So uh, would you like to answer all those questions, all five? Who wants to go first? Chris, go on. You have to talk into the mic. Oh,
1: okay. You can use this one. Which one? <laughs> oh, that's much better, yeah. Um, so, um, science and politics. I, mean, I, I, I think I cut things up a bit differently from the way you do, Mike, basically. Um, so, did, let, let me just say, I mean, supposing it was sort of discovered and <laughs> widely reported and became sort of mainstream that uh, revolution works i mean supposing it was discovered that actually the process of becoming human in africa around 300,000 years ago when something remarkable happened where language culture morality all these things emerged and set the human species on course supposing that that theory of the human revolution which by the way is already quite you know quite widely accepted can can you not see that it would in, in itself intrinsically have political implications. I mean, if, especially if it's it's true, as I'm I'm certainly convinced, you just could not get the emergence of language in a hierarchical, dominance and submission type, monkey rape type primate society. I mean, one of the findings I've made, with many others, we're working on this, is that actually the emergence of language depended on egalitarianism. Egalitarianism actually depended on a, on a substantial. Um, um, t- t- component of female solidarity and power, which is actually not present among um, chimpanzees, it is present among bonobos, but actually the dynamics of society had to change and actually go through a revolution to even establish language. All I'm saying is that there are certain findings within science which to me are intrinsically empowering, intrinsically revolutionary, as was, for example, the discovery a long time ago, of course, that the earth is round and it moves. (laughs) I mean, that that had huge political impact. and, and so my, my idea has always been if we, were, if we only were to somehow put the big picture together, instead of going down rabbit holes, try to pick the big, the big picture of human origins, emergence and history so that the whole world sort of began to make some kind of sense, I think that would be intrinsically revolutionary, intrinsically um, powerful, and that's what I've been. That's why I actually became an anthropologist, because it's only within anthropology, it seems to me, at any rate, that all the different components of psychology and geography and all these uh, sociology and everything else, you know, sort of meet up and connect. Um, so that's that, uh, that. That's my that's my view. And what I'm what I'm always been shocked at is the way in which Noam Chomsky, when it comes to this kind of issue, for example, the origin of language, he seems to go out of his way to make the emergence of language as meaningless. As it could possibly be. Now, what could be more devoid of meaning than the theory which he puts forward, which is that was a kind of ape-like creature wandering around at some time in the past, and it hit a cosmic ray shower. This cosmic ray shower produced a mutation. That mutation then produced a language organ in this individual's head, which was perfect, and which then resulted in that that individual talking to itself. I mean, I cannot think of anything more devoid of any, you know. Political implications in that theory and i 'm arguing actually is the reason why Noam Chomsky had to depoliticize, absolutely remove like almost sanitize the size of any suggestion of any kind of political implications it's, it's, it, and it, it comes from the fact that actually that kind of stuff he was doing for the military just needed to be depoliticized because if you'd actually worked out what the politics of it was you 'd realize how extraordinarily unpleasant uh, it was what you know what these geezers were actually trying to do these these you know um, People inventing command and control systems for missiles to be used in Vietnam and so on. So, in order to sort of conceal the politics of it, he had to actually claim that science itself has no political uh, valence. Um, and then, just finally, on um, Camilla Power's point about Rajava, I mean, what can I say? I mean, I mean yes, I mean, and again, I'm so it's like a, we, she's right, we, we have a sort of miracle in a part of Syria of all places. I mean, just think of the patriarchs involved in that part of the world over the over the generations. We have a, a, a part of a part of Syria, actually nearly a third of it recently, not even Kurdish, kind of, you know, spearheaded by Kurdish people, but including Christians and Assyrians Syriacs and all kinds of different ethnicities, with enormous emphasis on women's power and ecology. I mean, it's just almost like a miracle that those those that confederation uh, led by uh, Kurdish militants, has, has actually managed to succeed. And now, uh, Camilla's right, it, it seems to be surrounded by enemies of patriarchs of different time, kinds. And Trotsky has been magnificent in standing out in defense of that, of Rojava. And so, absolutely, today, rather than Vietnam, there's obviously a number of places, of course, but Rojava is absolutely central. We need absolutely to build on and defend that, that almost miracle of a part of the world where you know, never perfect, of course, but where women's solidarity and equality and so on are being, are being celebrated and emphasised as the basis of the, not even a state actually, they don't even like the idea of a state, of a, of a confederation. It needs to be defended. Camilla's absolutely right.
3: Um,
4: oh yeah, okay. Can I suggest rather than me, you know, us having a yes, no discussion about the role of the media that you perhaps read Bad News for Labour which was the peer it's oh, For goodness sake. Do you know can can I can I just say you do your cause no good. Uh, so do you, I'm sorry can we just I've reviewed the book and it's rubbish. You <laughs> <laughs> I suggest you read it anyway. And make an opinion about it, but also, and I think this would be something that perhaps would be as instructive. If you want to see how media, not just our media now, but shall we say Euro-American capitalist media responds to the resistance of minorities, go and have a look. And see how Martin Luther King was being reported at his time. Or let's think about the fact that the Tory party or many members of the Tory party were calling for Nelson Mandela to be hung. And that was being backed up by the media. Because what you've got to actually get your head around is that we do not have an independent media And so, if you want me to talk and to justify and tell you what has happened, I mean, just for one more short example, that laughable panorama program, which didn't actually reveal that all its 15 informants were on the executive of the Jewish labor movement, which was just an extraordinary thing to do. But. Yeah, as for the um, very interesting question, actually, about the rise of reactionary forces, and I'd put with that the rise of of nationalist, almost uber-masculine leaders, you know, who kind of strut their stuff. And they... No, it was also over here and, and there, who sort of strut their stuff all the way along, I actually link exactly what you say about the use of language to what I was talking about, about the rise of identity politics, how it's become, you know, all you have to do is to say, I'm sorry, if I hear that, you're, you're going to offend me. Well, I would like to say, hard oh, damn luck, because if I can't offend you, then we are in problems. I, as a black woman, I need to offend you. I need to offend you, to remind you what the truth is about what the life of people of color is in this country. And let's just get away from the nonsense of offense and identity politics. And let's go back to talking about power, about oppression, and about actual racism. Um, In terms of Rojava, I mean, it it just breaks my heart, because here we have this extraordinary example, a bit like how Corbyn was, about about the way how in, in total contradiction to everything that's happening around, you can suddenly get this extraordinary upsurge of a woman, Dominated, properly diverse, properly tolerant society, surrounded not just by an immediate sea of patriarchal, authoritarian awfulness, but actually surrounded in terms of global uh, politics by an awful, nationalistic, authoritarian militaristic patriarchal power structure.
0: Mm -hmm. I I want now to draw this to a close by thanking our speakers, thanking you all for your honesty and for your commitment and for the book that you've put into the public domain. Thank you also to the audience for your robust questions and challenging the speakers. Thank you to those of you who managed to keep your cool, uh, even though you may have disagreed very passionately. Um, I hope that it's been productive for you. Please um, come and join us for a drink and uh, help us to congratulate.
1: The Jeremy Bentham pub in University Street. Which to- okay, well, there's a
0: glass here as well, and well, then you can go on. We're providing you with a glass. There's, a, there's some wine at the back of the room so that you can partake here, and then if you want to go on to Jeremy Bentham, please do.